Hey there, and welcome back to Crypto Clarified. This is the podcast series where we clarify crypto. We take the most captivating headlines and trends from the crypto space. We break them down and explain what's going on to help you understand what is a fast-moving and complex space. My name is Benjamin Dean, and I'm Director of Wisdomtree's Digital Assets team. Today, I've got the pleasure of being joined by Aaron Fries, co-founder and CEO of Digital Asset Research. Today's show, we're going to talk data. Good data, bad data, why it matters, because as we've seen over the last decade, good data matters and bad data is a big problem. We're going to talk about some of the pitfalls people have uh, fallen into in the past and how those have been fixed over time. And then, as always, we'll finish up thinking about the future. It's the end of the year, folks. End of the year. So it's a big 2024 coming up. And we'll think a little bit about what to expect as we go down the pike. Before we start, US listeners, check out wisdomtreeprime.com, Apple, Android app stores, wherever you get apps. Find purveyors of apps. That's where you can find the app. Hit subscribe and share on Spotify, YouTube, iTunes. Again, find purveyors of podcasts. Wherever you want to get podcasts, hit subscribe, make your life easier, and you'll get this every time we release a new episode. You can find me on the Bird app at Benjamin Dean. Before we begin, Sam and James, you know I love this part. Strap yourselves in, people. It's compliance disclaimer time. Before I begin, I need to state the following to clarify the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of wisdom tree and digital assets research and are subject to change. Anything we present in this podcast is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, nor as investment or tax advice. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are not a recommendation, offer, solicitation to buy or sell any securities relies upon them is at the sole discretion of the listener. Please remember past performance is no indication of future results all right on to the fun stuff Aaron. it's always lovely to see you welcome to the podcast thanks so much yeah great to see you as well we've known each other for a few years and uh you've got an interesting background and journey you've taken throughout the space uh how about you run through the listeners a little bit about how you got involved and and what you're doing now yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we have known each other for a couple of years. So um, I actually came into the crypto space. I'm an attorney by trade. Um, and so I came in um, as a, a pretty staunch crypto skeptic, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I first learned about crypto back in 2011, 2012. And my first response was, um, I don't know why anybody's paying attention work. to this from a regulatory standpoint. Um, there's no way this will this will work. Um, and I, I, you know, the regulatory red flag seemed far too great uh, to me from from the very beginning. Um, when I first, uh, you know, I, I'm an attorney. I spent many years doing corporate work for tech and fintech companies. Um, and so I started to uh, get questions of, around crypto probably around 2017. Um, and back in those days, it was early enough in the legal space, especially that once you answered uh, one question around crypto or had one client that was in the crypto space, uh, you got them all uh, because no one uh, really had any experience in, in this space. Um, and so fast forward a couple of years, and that's really all I was doing um, was, was work in the crypto space. And it's really consumed uh, you know, my professional life for the last six years now. Um, and happy to be here. I, I, I can say I've, I've uh, uh, ch changed my tune a little bit. Um, I started working with digital asset research. Hmm? I said, that's good. Welcome. It's always yeah, nice great. to have more lawyers. We um, love lawyers in the crypto space. Yeah. <laughs> no one ever says that. So thank you. I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, I started working with digital asset research um, in around 2018. Um, 
we were in that at that time primarily a research firm. So you could think about the equivalent of cell side research um, uh, in the traditional space. That's what we were doing. This was we were formed in 2017, which was right around the ICO boom. Um, so there were a lot of new assets. Uh, there were a lot of new firms entering the space for the first time, uh, and they they needed to know the basics, right? W what is this asset class? How does it trade? How does it custody? What are the risks? How, what are the valuation metrics? How do you think about it? Um, and so we were doing long form research on these assets. Um, one of the things we ran into from the beginning was where do you get the data from? Um, because research is really only as as good as the data you're putting into it. Um, and none of the, you know, um, solutions in the market at the time we thought were satisfactory. Um, crypto, especially at that time, um, exchanges would pop up overnight um, with, uh, you know, with billions of dollars in trades uh, that they were reporting uh, that were clearly uh, not not accurate. Um, and we didn't want to be, you know, accept all of that data into our research, you know, data in, data out is garbage in and garbage out. And so Got we on. started to really ask hard questions around which exchanges and which data sources uh, can you really are more trustworthy? Uh, what does price quality look like in this space? What do real volumes look like in this space? Can we identify fake volume? Can we identify uh, signs of manipulation? And what's important when you're having those conversations? And so we started to develop that methodology. Um, and I, again, I came to it from, you know, a, a legal background. Um, and so, you know, risk and compliance was really sort of the, the, the top of the list of things that we were thinking about when we started to, you know, develop our own um, methodology when we think about price and quality. Um, so we started working really early on with uh, FTSE Russell and the London Stock Exchange Group. Um, and when we first started working with them back in 2018, we actually started with the risk and compliance team. Um, that's where their crypto journey started, which I think is a really interesting place for our crypto journey to, uh, to start for a large institution. Um, but it was really helpful because we were able to, um, you know, answer the hard questions right up front and get to a methodology that they could get comfortable with, um, you know, as an index provider having a quality price was the first and most important question uh, that FTSE had to answer. And so, you know, we spent a couple of years developing, you know, this methodology and how do you identify price manipulation in the market? Um, you know, and it's really shaped the journey for, for DAR um, since then. So how do you identify price manipulation and wash trading and things? Because we know they're distributed ledgers, but then a lot of the trading happens in centralized exchanges, which aren't on the distributed ledger. And I mean, from back in my days of doing like a traffic analysis, like you can pick out anomalous patterns, but these are quite specific. It's like fraud detection, really. Uh, what are the kind of things that you folks look at that, that hint to you that something is awry? Yeah. It's a great question. So, and there's a, a couple of different ways that we do this and at a couple of different levels. Um, so we look at both qualitative and quantitative upfront. So when we're looking at, um, you know, all of the pricing sources that could go into a price for these assets, right? Um, there, there's a lot of them. There's centralized exchanges, there's decentralized exchanges, um, there's peer-to-peer -peer trading right on the blockchain, there's over-the-counter desks, you know, there's um, a lot of different ways that these assets are traded. It's 
um, a unique problem because when you're thinking about in, in the TradFi world, you know, there's a primary listing market. Um, and so it, it's a little, it's a lot easier to understand where the price is coming from um, because these trade globally on hundreds of if not thousands of venues. Um, you really have to think about um, how do you evaluate those? We're looking for when we're trying to get to a good price, there's sort of two different things we're thinking about. One is qualitatively, you know, um, thinking of uh, like counterparty risk, right? Um, organizationally, is the is the exchange doing the things we would expect to see from a mature traditional financial institution? Things like the protection of client assets and um, the uh, separation of duties between a custodian and and the and the trading venue. Um, uh, you know, good governance. Um, uh, you know, independent oversight through an audit or through uh, a board. Those types of things. Um, you know, are there policies and procedures in place that that we would expect to see around? financial crimes, know your customer, uh, you know, anti-money laundering, those types of things. Do you know who's interacting on your exchange? Um, really a first line of defense when it comes to, um, you know, identifying um, uh, manipulation. And we've seen those stories, you know, on that side of, 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 um, of the methodology, we've seen those stories play out in the news for years in the crypto market, right? Um, if you don't know who's interacting on your exchange, the likelihood for wash trading, um, you know, obviously goes up uh, materially. Um, you know, I remember a couple of years ago, there was a story of a college kid that was hired by many crypto projects just to wash trade assets um, <laughs> on exchanges. And he would open up many, many accounts and just trade back and forth with himself all day um, and was paid, you know, uh, to, to do that, to, to pump volume for, for specific assets. Um, so, you know, we want to make sure that they know who's uh, interacting on, on their exchange. They have market surveillance software in place and they're using it, um, right? That um, there's, uh, they're identifying these, uh, these behaviors um, and, and taking action accordingly. So that's on the, um, on the qualitative side, on the, on the um, uh, counterparty diligence side. We also look at price quality, though. Um, so, what is the what is the data that we actually see coming out of, of these venues? Um, so, we're looking at order book data and trade data, putting it through a, a you know a series of tests um, to make sure that it's, it's what we would expect to see from from a market. And I can give you you know several examples of what this might look like. So. Uh, for example, when we're talking about just fake data, right, we're talking about these exchanges that pop up reporting billions of, of, of volume, you know, in trade volume uh, overnight. Um, one of the things that we see is that there, um, the um, distribution between buys and sells looks uh, not like what we would expect to see from real, from real volume. So, um, most exchanges will label all of their trades as either a buy or a sell um, that will come through in the data that we receive from the exchanges. Um, what you would expect to see in a, in a typical market is that it's more favorable to buyers or more favorable to sellers, depending on the conditions at any given time, right? You're going to see more sells in a row or more buys in a row, depending on what's happening in the market. Um, what we don't expect to see is a completely randomized distribution of buys and sells, right? A buy, a sell, a buy, a sell, two buys, two sells. Um, you know, when you when you look at the distribution of, of that data, if it looks like it's all randomized, um, that's not uh, what we would expect to see in an actual market. Um, crypto markets are volatile and there's sometimes uh, you can't predict what's going to happen, but they're not random. Um, they don't look the same as a coin toss. Um, you know, there is some, some um, 
you know, there are market ebbs and flows that we see. We expect to see more buys in a row or more sells in a row given at any given time. So that's one of the things, you know, that we can look at to see, does this data look like what we would expect it to see? And there's a lot of different um, versions of that. We look at the order book, you know, are the spreads what we would expect to see? Um, you know, obviously, we expect to see lower spreads, uh, smaller spreads for more liquid assets. Um, we look at trade lot sizes. So, um, you know, we don't expect to see... Um, the average trade lot for Bitcoin be six, seven, eight, nine, you know, Bitcoin at a time, even for the institutional um, exchanges, the exchanges that, you know, interact mostly with institutional clients, trade lot sizes are are typically a tenth of a Bitcoin, you know, half of a Bitcoin or smaller. Um, you know, we're not seeing, uh, obviously we do see the larger trades, but that's not going to be the bulk of the trading. Um, you know, they're still going to happen at smaller lot sizes. Um, so when we see an exchange say that their most typical lot size is nine Bitcoin at a time, um, that's a big red flag for us. Um, and there's other things like that. Um, you know, how, um, what is the depth of the order book, right? Like, what does the slippage look like when when there are large, well, you know, a lot, a lot of trading happening at once? Um, uh, trade Trading patterns. Uh, prices is the price correlated, uh, you know, a, 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 across other markets that we see. Is the price in line? Does it deviate frequently when there are large spikes in volume? Does the price deviate? You know, we're looking at all of that the, that type of data to see, um, you know, are there red flags that we can identify from this exchange? Um, and so we actually look at this on a quarterly basis, um, you know, and it changes frequently, um, you know, and the, the number of exchanges that we're looking at changes frequently. Um, I would say on a month to month basis, there are at least, um, you know, 10 to 15 exchanges that um, fall out of the universe completely, um, that they, they no longer exist, um, and 10 to 15 new ones that come in, which might not seem like a lot. But when you're talking about, you know, five, six, 700 exchanges, that many coming in and out every month, um, uh, you, you know, actually is a, is, is a pretty big percentage. Um, so, you know, we, we see new exchanges pop up all the time. Um, and so we look at both qualitative and quantitative. We want to make sure that the data we're seeing makes sense. It's what we would expect to see. We want to make sure that the, the um, their policies, their practices, that's what we would expect to see from an organizational standpoint. Um, you know, we put those two together to determine what we think is, um, you know, the more trustworthy pocket of, of, of the market, where we think um, the data is quality, is, is high enough quality to be included in our price and in our volume figures. Um, you know, we take all of that data, we aggregate it, and that's how we, we, we get our, our, our pricing data. Um, Volume data is a is a, is a is a whole separate uh, sort of uh, conversation. Um, you know, when we're talking about volume again, because these assets trade across a really large number of, of trading venues, it's hard to pinpoint, it, or if not impossible, to pinpoint exactly what the volume is for these assets. Um, and some of those trading uh, venues are, are really opaque. OTC desks, a lot of trading happens on OTC desks. You know, that volume uh, number is really going to be hard to pin down. Um, so what we look at is what do we know, what do we know is at least the floor for volume, right? Um, it's much smaller than than all of the um, hundreds of exchanges out there put together uh, because you know we don't um, you, you know include all of those exchanges for the reasons we just talked about. We don't include all of those in our volume numbers. We look at the exchanges that do pass a minimum number of these tests to say the 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 volume uh you know coming from this exchange should be included in a in a market volume and come up with what we call verifiable volume so that's a minimum amount of volume that we think is is trustworthy in the market 
knowing that there's some some space above that that we're you know that we're not able to capture okay well that really is a lot of information <laughs> <laughs> yes it is it is and we uh we, we do that on a quarterly basis so there's a lot of there's a lot of work that goes into you know what is the price of bitcoin um it's it's quite a long answer <laughs> it's i mean a lot of that is basic due diligence are these people mm-hmm. running the shop correctly? A lot of it's pattern matching exactly. and recognition. Mm-hmm. I imagine with the decentralized exchanges, you just basically like do network graphs and you'll, you'll find which wallets are trading with one another pretty quick, right? So taking all that together then, uh, FTX, what was your view on FTX and how soon before it blew up did you see the red flags? So uh, FTX actually never passed our betting. Um, so it was never part of our pricing um, um, uh, data set. Um, we saw the red flags really from the beginning. I can't say uh, that we we knew all of the red flags. Um, there were certainly some things going on that we we did not know about and, and did not catch. And we learned some lessons there of things that, you know, we need to be more, um, to, to be asking better questions, especially around, you know, um, the safeguarding of client assets and the separation of, you know, custody versus exchange and, and, and those types of things. Um, we definitely learned some lessons there. Um, we we didn't include FTX in, in our pricing um, though. From the beginning, uh, there were a couple things that we saw that that didn't meet our standards. Um, their financial crimes policies from the beginning were not what we you know wanted to see from uh, from exchanges, and the transparency level, to be honest, was was not there with us. Um, you know, we we um, obviously we come asking questions <laughs> to these exchanges, um, uh, and they uh, weren't uh, willing to be forthcoming uh, with, with the answers. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we took that as, you know, that uh, it could be a red flag, could just be that they didn't want to participate. Um, uh, so, but we, you know, we, we didn't include them uh, from, from the beginning, um, you know, so uh, we were, our, our clients that rely on our exchange vetting methodology to understand, you know, counterparty risk and to make those sorts of decisions, we're actually able to manage the risk in that um, and, and we're not highly affected, um, you know, by, by the blow up there. How about Binance? Yeah, it's another good one. Um, so, you know, Binance has changed over the years for us. Um, so true. Binance at first was, it did not pass our vetting it by any measure um, um, at, at all. Um, over the last couple of years, Binance has started to pass onto what we call our watch list. So we have different tiers of exchanges. So we have exchanges that pass everything that we have <clears throat> really solid um, license agreements in place with. We call those our vetted exchanges. Um, they're our top tier. Then we have another uh, subsection called our, our watch list. And these are exchanges that pass all of the, the criteria that we deem um, critical, right? Uh, to know that the price quality is is um, is something that, that that we trust, but they don't quite pass all of the standards, right? They don't have the policies in place that we want to see from a mature organization. Um, there are some, you know, uh, uh, regulatory issues, perhaps uh, th- those types of things. Um, or they don't pass all of our data science tests. There's a lot of reasons why somebody would end up on a watch list instead of a vetted list. Um, Binance has been on our watch list for um, for a while. Um, you know, there are a, a large 
um, obviously the the largest contributor to volume. Um, so you know to not include them in our vetted list and in our, our highest quality prices, there, there's a big hit of volume happening there. We do make sure that the price is not affected by that. Um, you know that it's still well correlated, and especially with more liquid assets, the price is well correlated across across all of these markets, which is good. Um, so we can exclude an, an exchange like Binance uh, without affecting the price. Um, but you know, when it comes to Binance, one of the things that we've actually seen them improve on over the years uh, is their financial crimes policies. So there was a point in time where you could go to Binance, you could trade with just an email address. Um, obviously, that didn't meet any standards um, uh, uh, when it came, when it came to quality. Um, they've they've improved that over time, so they actually have uh, you know um, uh, you know passed more and more of our of our standards um, as the years have gone on. There's obviously been some some regulatory issues that they have not addressed um, uh, that we've been you know seeing play out um, recently, which is really why they've never truly been on our um, uh, our vetted list is is because you know those regulatory issues have always sort of been um, hanging hanging out there. Um, I will say that Binance US was on our vetted list. Um, they no longer are uh, because we saw when um, the SEC lawsuit came out, their price actually diverged from the market. So. Uh, we had to remove them because we saw a price quality issue. Um, their prices were um, pretty far off market um, from what we were seeing elsewhere. Um, we were able to, you know, in in as as that lawsuit uh, moves forward, and we all learn more, and 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 you know, I think we're and we're learning more from the Binance situation overall. Um, we'll see, you know, um, uh, you know how that shakes out. But we, you know, had a lot of conversations with the folks that started Binance US, um, to, you know, to get comfortable, uh, you know, with their policies and their practices, and they actually were pretty uh, transparent with us and forthcoming. Um, They've now been removed, obviously, you know, uh, for for price quality issues. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it's the um, one of the things that we knew we needed to do from the beginning of this is have a methodology that allows for this type of thing to happen, right? That allows for exchanges to come into the pricing, allows for exchanges to fall out of the pricing. Um, for these reasons, you know, as we see exchanges mature, um, we want to see them, you know, uh, uh, be included if they can. Um, as new information comes out, we knew exchanges would have to be pulled out of the pricing source. Um, we do still expect we have, you know, it, a lot of M&A to happen in the space. I think as it matures, we'll see that across the exchange space. I think we'll see it uh, consolidate and tighten. Um, so we wanted a methodology that was really um, flexible instead of saying it's these four exchanges or it's, it's these five exchanges, these, you know, um, in our pricing source. We do, we, we change it every quarter according to what's actually going on in the market. Um, and quarterly does seem like a lot of <laughs> a lot of a lot of work, um, uh, you know, to to change that list four times a year. But um, as you know, I'm, I'm sure crypto markets move fast, um, and things. Uh, one one year, I, I heard somebody say that you should measure crypto time in dog years. So you know, one year is like seven. <laughs> so what's the delta on kind of the ones that pass the green checkbox and the ones that don't? And by that I mean mm -hmm. if we take the whole yeah. universe. I mean, pull in the data and you can look at price or volume. And then you take this subset that have got the green light or the green checkbox. Like how big a difference is it? And I know that it will be different over time and it'll be different across different assets and things like that. But it, it, how material is it? Yeah. 
So I, two answers to that, I think. So the first in terms of, you know, what is the real difference? It can be a, a, a really material. So we've seen price differences if you include the whole universe, hundreds of exchanges uh, versus what we think is, uh, you know, price quality exchanges uh, be as high as 20% for some really um uh, less liquid assets. When you get yeah. to the more liquid assets, it, it, I mean, for Bitcoin, we've seen the price be as much as a 1% off, uh, which, you know, if you're striking an app, 1% can be a, a pretty big difference. Um, so in terms of the, you know, the actual uh, price difference, it can be, it can be a lot, it, it, you know, um, uh, d depending on the asset. But the other thing that I would say about that is that it makes a really big difference, I think, when we're we're talking about the market as a whole and how it's viewed and how it's viewed, especially from a regulatory uh, aspect. Um, I know one of the things, um, you know, uh, a lot of people are watching the ETF space right now and these filings that have been coming up um, when years ago, uh, uh, again, just a couple of years ago, but the last time we went through this with, with the SEC and, and we had you know, ETF filings and we saw those denials come out, um, the, the number one thing that we saw the SEC say over and over and over again, the main theme of those denials was price quality and price discovery. And is this a price that we can trust? And how do we know that the market isn't uh, being manipulated? Um, one of the arguments that uh, we heard made repeatedly um, in, in the previous applications was, well, we all know that there's this segment of the market that is uh, not good, right? That's not regulated, that's operating either nefariously or just is not mature, has a bad price, has bad practices, um, and th but that's over here in the corner. Um, but we also know there's a well uh, you know, um, uh, an orderly market, right? There's a market that we do trust and that's over here. And this is where we're getting our price from. Like, this is the market that we don't think is being manipulated. And we should just focus on this. Um, and what the SEC came back and said was, that's all well and fine. Like, if we, if we just accept, you know, your version of these exchanges are the ones where there's real volume and real market activity and they're, they operate in an orderly fashion, we can trust that, that the price coming out of that. Um, that doesn't mean we can ignore all, everything else that's happening because what happens if the price of Bitcoin moves materially? Where did that originate from? What if it originates over here in the bad market, right? Even if we all agree that this is fake data, this is bad data, it's not high quality, it shouldn't be included. If the price of Bitcoin on one of those exchanges rises by you know, a, a couple of percentage points, does the rest of the market follow suit? <laughs> um, does this nice orderly market that we're looking at uh, respond to that? Or, you know, when we see these these movements in the price of Bitcoin, where is it leading? Like, who's leading those movements? Is it the orderly market we trust or is it the bad market that we don't trust? Um, you know, that was one of the biggest questions that they wanted to, to have resolved. Um, we actually spent a lot of time looking at that question and we went we talked to the SEC several times uh, around what we found there. Um, we did find that um, in most cases, when the price of Bitcoin was moving uh, materially more than I believe we looked at five percent, um, it was that that price movement was originating out of either a vetted or a watchlist exchange. You know, exchange where we could where we could trust the data. Um, not always, but most of the time. Um, but it was a, it's a really interesting question. You know, I think that it's. Um, it's one thing to know that your price and your volume figures are high quality. Um, it doesn't, um, you know, I think we, as a, as a market, as, you know, as people in the crypto space, I still think there's a lot of work to do to clean up the rest of the market so that from a regular regulatory point of view, 
um, you know, the, the data coming out of it is more trustworthy. It's probably an issue as well where I don't trust this exchange and yet there are people on the exchange doing legitimate trades, which yes. in a way, if you chuck it all out and say, no, nah, well, this doesn't matter. But if people are doing sizable trades that are real trades on venues that you kind of said, no, nah, we don't like them, then you miss that as well, right? And I guess you'll see it as you're saying, like flow through into the, the ones that you do keep an eye on and are green uh, lighted, but then there's the turtles all the way down problem, which is <laughs> markets are uh, convexive. Uh, what's the old Buff uh, Warren Buffett quote? Uh, no, it's not Buffett. The convexity of markets, which is one thing influences another, which flows into another, which loops back and base reflexive. I'm sorry. It's obviously getting very late in the year. They're reflexive. And so trying to sort <laughs> that out, I imagine also is one of those things that requires a lot of thinking, a lot of work, but it's just kind of inescapable, isn't it? And it was Soros that said yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got there in the end. <laughs> that is the yeah, end of the year. <laughs> it is, it, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, it, you're right. Be because we are excluding some exchanges, there is some real volume that we know we're taking out of, of you know, our, our price and volume figures. Um, but the problem is that you can't, um, if we don't trust all of the data coming from an exchange, um, you know, there's no way to know what's real and what's not. Um, or, uh, you know, so I, we would rather be confident that what we do include is um, from trusted exchanges as opposed to including some that's not, um, you know, and, and we have seen that we have seen the markets mature over time. You know, the, the list of exchanges that we include has grown. Um, the list of watch, uh, watch list exchanges that we include has grown. Um, and, we we talk to these exchanges a lot, right? Um, and we've seen we've seen them mature over time. We've had conversations with exchanges that in the beginning didn't want to give us their historical data because they weren't super confident in it. Um, and and now you know they, they, we've seen them mature and become more forthcoming. So um, it, it the markets are 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 changing. You know there are more regulations. Uh, I think that are you know. Uh, globally that are thoughtful, um, you know, might not be perfect, but I, I think are really helpful uh, in, in moving us forward. Um, I am a big proponent that, that, that regulation, if it's done correctly, uh, really could be a big driver here. Um, you know, I think it's obviously had a big impact in, in the U.S. and how uh, and with crypto markets here, I think it's going to continue to do that. Um, but I, I do think that there are institutions. I think there are whole swaths of, um, uh, uh, you know, of the financial space that have not adopted crypto in a large way that could make a big difference. And there, it's that's not really going to happen in a meaningful way until the regulators are comfortable uh, with these topics. Exactly. You know, when we think about the wealth space, the RIA space, um, you know, it's a, I think it's a, a space that people have been trying to unlock uh, in, in crypto for years. Um, and it's hard to do, right? Because you need regulation and you need high quality prices and we're getting there. And there's a lot of really good work being done, um, uh, which is great. Uh, but I, I think continuing to really examine the market and these exchanges and, and what's going on and continuing to, you know, advocate for sensible regulations um, uh, is, is, is the path forward. Cool. 
place is changing. It's professionalizing. It's all part of the adoption curve, really. Um, it's a totally yeah. different world to five or 10 years ago. And yeah, cleaning up that kind of stuff. It's part of the natural selection process, but also, as you say, you can do it top down as well. Um, look, we're coming up on time though. Um, we're at the end of the year, 2023. It's been a busy year, lots of happenings. Um, looking forward, what have you got your eye on for the coming year, 2024? Yeah, it has been a busy year. Um, and <laughs> I owe it's, it's hard in crypto because there's always, um, about a million things happening at once. Um, <laughs> and, um, a, a million more coming down the pike. Uh, I learned very early on in crypto that if you try to keep track of, of all of the things, uh, you will, you will fail miserably. <laughs> um, so, yeah. um, I, I think for us, um, you know, I think really for everybody, I'm sure you've heard this answer a lot, the, the regulatory landscape in the U.S., I think we've got to keep our eye on, um, you know, both from the SEC perspective, uh, you know, I think with uh, the, the ETFs, everything that's happening with um, the Ripple case, all of the the exchange uh, um, lawsuits that are out there now, you know, uh, Kraken, I think, is the latest one. Um, you know, I, I think seeing how those play out really will make a big difference in the market overall. Um, you know, and then even outside of the SEC with Congress, uh, we've got a presidential election coming up. You know, all of those things are going to make a, a really big difference um, uh, in, in the crypto space over the next year. Um I also think, you know, there's a lot of really positive market signals. Um, there's a much, uh, m much more reasons to be excited about the next year uh, sitting here in December of 23 than there was in December of 22. Um, you know, to, uh, we've got, you know, the possibility of, of the ETFs coming up. There's a Bitcoin halving that's coming up. Um, you know, there's a lot of... Um, great price movement that we've seen over the last you know couple of months that we hope hope that continues so i think there's a lot of really positive market signals that we we can be excited about um i'm, I'm certainly more excited than uh, uh for for 24 uh than, than i was for 23 um and then i you know we're really keeping an eye closely on the tokenization space i think that as the next you know crypto bull run really takes shape uh, tokenization is going to be a bigger and bigger part of that conversation, which I think is exciting because it really unlocks a whole new, um, you know, um, market cap in a really material way. Like when you look at the market cap of crypto, it's tiny compared to anything in TradFi. I mean, you know, we're, we're still a very small segment of the market. Um, when you start tokenizing the rest of the markets, even in some small percentage, um, you, you know, that, that's going to become more and more exciting. It's going to drive that up, um, which we're excited about. I'm glad you're excited because I have a lot of work to do in 2024, especially around tokenization. Yes. <laughs> Great. But that, <laughs> Love to hear that. Erin, <laughs> where can people find you on the interwebs? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn or you can find me uh, at digitalassetresearch.com. There you go, folks. Another big year. Uh, it's nice to close it out with you, Erin. With that, though, we are out of time. I hope everyone's found today's podcast useful and informative. U.S. listeners, wisdomtreeprime.com. Check it out. You can find me at Benjamin Dean on the Bird app. Thank you very much. Have a happy holidays. And we hope you all have an excellent day.